there, you're listening to the podcast, What Are You Going to Do With That?, of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions. I'm Dani, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Haifa, and I'm hosting this podcast to learn more about the journey of young scholars towards an academic career. In former episodes, we've talked about how their ups and downs, and in today's special episode, I'll be talking with our special guest, Adriana Bankston. Adriana is a doctor, as she has a PhD in biochemistry, cell and developmental biology from Emory University, and she's completed a postdoc at the University of Louisville. Adriana then decided not to follow the classic academic career path. Instead, she has worked as a policy and advocacy fellow at the Society for Neuroscience, where she provided staff support for special and ongoing projects. She currently works as a principal legislative analyst in the University of California Office of Federal Governmental Relations. In this role, she serves as an advocate for the University of California with Congress, the administration, and federal agencies. Advocacy and support are Adriana's main field of expertise. In addition to working for the university, she serves as vice president of Future of Research. This is a non-profit organization whose mission is to champion, engage, and empower early career scientists with evidence-based resources to improve the scientific research endeavor. In addition, Adriana is Chief Outreach Officer at the Journal of Science Policy and Governance, which is a non-profit and interdisciplinary peer review publication, serving as a vehicle for students, policy fellows, young professionals, and early career scholars, to publish on the widest range of science, technology, and innovation policy topics. And that's not all. Adriana is also a member of the Global Consortium for Academic Mental Health. This is a non-profit organization created to improve the mental health care access and address the unhealthy culture currently pervading academia. After having talked to young academics from different fields in this podcast, and having heard about the struggles they encountered during their training and research, we thought it would be very nice to have a professional like Adriana to tell us about the people out there like her who are helping people like us to get through. So thank you very much, Adriana, for finding the time to talk with us today. For me, it's already afternoon, but for you, it's still morning. That means that for me, it's time to have my signature drink. My amaretto is with me on this side of the screen. (laughs) I'm going to pour myself some, but you probably have something else, don't you? Morning coffee, yes. Coffee. Is that your regular morning drink? Yes, that's a, that's an old habit I think started in college and just kind of went through, you know, um, scientists drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> I do also yeah. drink a lot of coffee. I had one just before we started. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. There you go. I'd like to start with some short questions to get to know you a bit better. So the first one is, at what time does your day start and what can you not do without in the morning? Um, around 6.30. So I, I realize what I, it really helps me now is, um, doing meditation in the morning and also walking outside. So I try to walk my dogs for about half an hour. Uh, and that gets me in a good mindset kind of calm down and start in a positive way um i didn't always do that but um it's been helpful lately so that's what i do now it sounds very healthy 
but sometimes difficult to maintain, as you say. Yeah, it's it's been it's been hard, especially now working from home. So I'm trying to trying to keep the routine, but it's not always work. All right, and then if you had to delete all but three apps from your phone, which ones would you keep? It's a tough one. <laughs> I so what I I use it more now, sort of more for professional reasons. Um, LinkedIn and Twitter. I don't know what other ones. I guess the other ones would be um, kind of well-being and meditation, these kinds of things that I'm more into recently. So I have a lot of those. Probably need to pick one, pick one of those and keep keep that. But um, that's what I would say. I guess um, LinkedIn, Twitter, and some sort of mindfulness app. All right. What does due to the Corona situation your home office look like today? Well, I'm on my couch, so I alternate between the desk and the couch. And my bed is also my bedroom, so I have to um, <laughs> keep that balance. But um, so I usually work at my desk, uh, but right now I'm just here, sort of with this um, laptop, and my one of my dogs is right here. So I have <laughs> I have two dogs. One of them is always next to me. So it keeps me company which is nice. And then we end up, um, we end up doing a lot of zoom calls and then look at, um, everybody's pets, which is nice. <laughs> All right. So you always have company yeah. in this office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Thanks for sharing. Before we continue with Adriana's journey from research to policymaking, we would like to invite you to contact us through social media. If you have a question for us about our show, about our guests, their journey and their research, please write to our Twitter account at what's to do with that, which is spelled with the number two. We look forward to your questions and answering them. Let's go back to Adriana. All right, so now I'm ready to dig in a bit deeper and let's start at the beginning. What made you decide to go for a PhD? Yeah, so it goes back a long time. I actually grew up around science. I have, and my parents are both PIs. Um, I used to go to their lab and trying to understand what they were doing and didn't really. So I have basically several generations are in, in science and medicine. I ended up going to college and majoring in biology, which was good in terms of, you know, I like the intellectual challenge. It was interesting. At that point, I still, I wanted to go to medical school, actually, for a long time um, to kind of use science to help help other people, and then ended up basically doing research um, in college just to add that to my CV at the, the time. It's like, well, that's a good experience, and also it helps you get into med school if you've actually done some research. And so, but, and then it sort of shifted from there that I realized that I really liked bed science and decided to go to grad school instead. And then um, didn't really know what I was gonna do with it. It was sort of, I think it was helpful for teaching me different skills, you know, teaches you how to think about different problems and manage projects and mentor people. And so I learned a lot of things that are helpful now, but um, while I was in the PhD, I wasn't really sure kind of where to take it at that point. And when you started the PhD, uh, you might have had some expectations. Do you think they eventually became true? Um, I think I expected it to be more instructional in that I would 
I guess being used to being in college, you're sort of like you're in class, you know what to do. So the teacher tells you like, here's the homework, you do that and I do well in that environment. So I think I sort of expected it to be that way and that I would be learning a lot of things. And there were, you know, I had, there were classes, but I didn't expect how much of that would have to be kind of my own development and experimentation and, you know, taking charge of my project and all those things. Those were new things. I did realize, so actually I switched labs after one year because I wanted to work for somebody who was a little more challenging, I guess. So at that point I realized that, you know, I needed to kind of take that into my own hands and create the PhD experience that I wanted to an extent. And so, you know, I had a good advisor, but I didn't feel like he was really challenging. And so I switched to someone that was, and she basically taught me everything that I know about science. Like she was really good at mentoring and grant writing, uh, publications and going through data, you know, thinking critically and being very uh, critical in terms of our presentations. And so, you know, a lot of those things I, I still do now. So I think that's what I would say is that I learned that you kind of have to take charge of your experience. And that's not what I went into thinking that it would be like that. Yeah. Right. So was it difficult to take that step to leave someone you wanted to originally do the whole PhD with and move to someone else who knows that you've left someone else already? It might be difficult to, to go through those stages, especially because you still are a student. Right? Like we're at the bottom of the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So how do you take that step? I think I took it as, you know, this is, this is something positive that will help me in the long term. I didn't feel like I was being challenged enough and um, I wanted to get more out of the PhD. So, I mean, I, I will say that there was definitely um, some backlash from people saying, oh, you know, if you change labs, this is going to happen. It's not a good idea. I mean, it's not a common thing, I guess, but I think it's, you kind of have to do what works for you. And then in the end, it's your degree and your experience and, you know, no one can really tell you what to do. And it turned out to be a really good decision in the end, kind of getting over that, um, I guess, short term embarrassment or whatever you feel when you're in it. But long term, it's a good, you know, I think if you keep, keep a long term vision. Definitely. Thanks for the tip. What did you like most about doing the PhD? I think seeing kind of the progression because I could I could sort of see myself becoming more independent and that's partly because of my mentor too because she did a good job to kind of train me really heavily at first and then be hands off when she needed to be and so she really fostered I think my growth over time in being you know doing experiments and learning how to think and kind of that process of becoming more independent and learning how to write and all those things I think uh, I definitely didn't go into it thinking that obviously I didn't know what it was going to be I didn't feel really competent uh, you know with the switching labs is also another twist of okay now I have to deal with this and so I think I wasn't feeling super confident when I first started but just because of the way that she trained me you know three four years later you feel like now you know what you're doing, you can go out in the world and use what you know, and you feel, you know, more confident and you've gained so many skills by that point. So you can really, I think you can really tell once you're kind of farther down the road that you, really, you have really grown from your first year in the PhD. All right. But then what was the hardest about doing the PhD? I think the hardest is just like everyone else, kind of getting used to failures and, you know, get up in the morning and try it again. <laughs> 
it takes a lot of resilience, I guess, uh, which is why I think having a, a good mentor is really important because, you know, they understand that. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a tough environment because you have to obviously ultimately publish and graduate. So we actually had, you know, re- publication requirements for which without which we wouldn't graduate. But, you know, because I think part of that is I have a very kind of strong sense of professional duty, like I know what my job is. And so I feel bad if I don't do what my advisor needs. And because that's going to ultimately have a, a bigger effect in, you know, on her, um, her grants and the ability of the lab to progress. And so I feel like, you know, I know kind of my place in the system, but at the same time, you know, it's really hard to keep going when you, you know, things just keep failing and you have to troubleshoot. So I don't know that I have really good advice about that. It just, you just, a lot of it is you just do it and things get better or you have another project, you know, I mean, there's other kind of strategies to employ there right? that you, you know, can, I think that's, I guess, actually, that's something that I would say is that I would advise people to have at least two projects um, because if something doesn't work, then maybe something works in the other one. And, you know, so it's, but it's, it's a lot of up and down. So that's hard, hard to deal with on a daily basis. And so keep in mind the ups, not only the downs. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, did you think about what you would do after the PhD studies while you were still studying? Honestly, I was pretty set in academia because, well, so part of that is growing up around that. So, um, which is good and bad, like having parents who are faculty can influence you in good and bad ways. But uh, I think mainly because I really like the way my mentor dealt with us and sort of, you know, like I said, she really fostered our independence. And I could... I think as I became more um, sort of strategic about thinking about, okay, how is she, how is she running her lab? What are the directions that she's going into? I could see myself kind of stepping into that role of now mentoring other people and writing grants on that topic. And, you know, I really like the research. And so that's why I ended up doing a postdoc because um, when I left my PhD, I was still pretty set on being a faculty member. Right. So after the PhD, you continued with a postdoc at a different university. And what was the research topic of that project? Yeah, so I switched essentially from studying muscle biology and my PhD to um, kind of more basic research, looking at essentially membrane trafficking, which is how molecules move around in cells. One sort of the, the logic there was that what I learned in my PhD was focused on essentially like a lot of cell culture and mouse work. And so I wanted to get more a bit into kind of the molecular side of things and learn how to do actually uh, more biochemical assays and imaging with the idea that um, I would sort of then combine all these skills into when I opened my lab to have all these different things that I I knew how to do. And was really interested in trafficking also at the time because it was a pretty hot field. And there's a lot of interesting imaging and things you can do and really get down to sort of how things happen in cells, um, more so than I did during my PhD, which was sort of um, kind of high level. So... I that's kind of, that was sort of the the motivation that I would you know be well rounded I suppose at the end of my postdoc having done all these different things in in PhD and postdoc together. Was it difficult to get a position 
in this particular different thing that you were looking for after the PhD? Because sometimes, I mean, you would assume that they would think like, no, you don't have any experience in this. Your PhD was not about this. So we're not giving you the postdoc position. Yeah, it's it's tough to, t- tough to switch. I had, um, so I had um, connection, someone that came to Emory and gave a presentation about her research, but also she was very interested in sort of this idea of how we're training, training scientists. And uh, I sort of kept in touch with her and then went to work for her actually. And she said that, uh, you know, I don't have a position now, but my former postdoc is looking for someone. So he had uh, had his lab for maybe probably less than five years at the time. And so that sort of helped that, uh, you know, I had this connection essentially in the field and was trying to kind of break into this other field over time and had done a little bit of that. Um, So towards the end of my PhD project, we actually ended up looking at trafficking muscle cells for a specific molecule. Um, And that, that sort of was the bridge, even though I didn't have a lot of experience, but uh, I could at least say that I have done some of these essays and then at the same time I had this connection with, you know, essentially the the faculty who trained the postdoc whose lab I went to. And then, um, you know, it was, it was a good experience. I, it's definitely different, but I was looking for something different from my PhD, right? So that worked out. Great. That was good news then. So you would say that networking is definitely helpful. So then... You finished your postdoc, you had an idea in your mind of starting your own lab with all of these skills that you have now combined, which is something that maybe others don't have that makes you very unique. Um, But then how did you go from being a researcher to becoming a policy and advocacy fellow? Yeah, it was a long road. So I left my postdoc in fall 2016. Initially, the transition happened that I actually had to ended up having to switch to a second lab because my first PI ran out of funding, and the second lab was also muscle lab, which is interesting. But basically, the PI um, sort of said that you know he wanted to train essentially faculty, and by that point, I was sort of like, I think I want something else. So it was a very amicable, mutual thing, like, okay, I think you need to leave the lab because we don't want the same things, right? I don't want the to be a PI, and he's like, okay, then you need to leave. So I basically left with no uh, no job, which is not, not advisable, but that's how it happened. So I ended up having to do a lot of kind of small things, for income, kind of, so did writing, did some manuscript editing. So I worked remotely from home for, I think, yeah, basically a company that edited manuscripts for people whose native language is not English. So I like that because it was sort of like, I'm still connected to science, but I'm not in the lab and I could do it from home. And then kind of picked up other small things on the side, doing writing and other small projects. At the same time, I was sort of getting interested in this idea of how we're training um, sort of the next generation of scientists and look to get involved with essentially organizations that were doing that in universities. Some of those ended up having um, opportunities too. And then, so I sort of focused on first of all, figuring out what to do from there, 
did some informational interviews with people in different positions and got involved with groups that were sort of around this idea of training and policy and advocacy, not really knowing where it would be. Um, it was just sort of like, this is cool. I'd like follow my passion and see what was going to happen pretty much. Um, and that just kind of grew into more and more projects and opportunities, I guess, to where I guess I would say future research probably was the most um, significant because we actually focused on um, more on empowering young scientists and doing sort of looking at how policies affect them and then sort of went from there into my fellowship with the idea that I now had some experience in policy and advocacy, but hadn't actually worked in an office because it was mostly from home and wanted to basically do that more officially. And because that's one of the best ways to actually transition into a policy career is through some sort of fellowship. And there's a lot of them, different ones. And this is just one of them that essentially they all do the same thing. They kind of train science PhDs and, you know, what the policy world looks like and getting involved in that and um, different elements of that. Uh, and that was sort of the bridge to my current position. So it was really, I would say that it was very self-directed, um, starting from, you know, doing a bunch of small things to get growing bigger and then realizing that this is a direction that I wanted to follow and figure out how to actually get paid to do that and make make a living out of that um yeah cool how did you experience that transition from researcher to policy did you consider it as a struggle or an achievement maybe at the time it was different than how you look back on it now yeah it was a struggle in part um just because i think that when you leave academia you're not really prepared for a lot of things so especially because I hadn't considered other careers during my PhD and even postdoc just started to kind of explore things during my postdoc so I didn't really um, you know have a clear path of where I was gonna go but at the same time it was actually really exciting I felt like okay at least I know I don't want to do academia so that door is closed and that's that's good and so I think I took it as an opportunity to try something else and figure out what I actually wanted out of life and my career and that because I knew that wasn't it. And so I think I was actually excited to explore different options and figure out actually where it would go. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been fun. I did a lot of things, um, you know, some were paid, some were unpaid, but they're all kind of around this idea, you know, related to um, improving the research system and, thinking about how we can empower young scientists. And this is really what my passion is, is what I want to do sort of for a living. Um, so it's been, you know, I've enjoyed it for the most part, even though it was maybe hard at first. But um, I think I feel like it gave me a chance to discover what I actually wanted to do. Right. Instead of staying stuck in something that you thought was your path and that's why you're doing it, but it's not actually making you happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Can you tell me how it worked out financially you said that you left a job so that's usually security right and then you didn't have anything anymore you started working on various projects you mentioned paid and also unpaid how do you decide um, how many unpaid projects you take on to advance your career but then still being unpaid and not having that security like how do you how did you take that on 
Yeah, I think um, the security was more around things that I knew were more regular. So, for example, this manuscript editing, um, you knew, okay, this is how much I'm getting paid for each one. Um, then I was looking for um, opportunities through these other organizations, which are a bunch of small projects that paid me. So I think I focused more on that at first. And then once it was okay and I knew what my budget was and what things looked like, then I picked up more things that were unpaid and then realized, okay, now I need to, because part of it is that you want, you need an income, but also that was the time when I was exploring my career options, right? So I couldn't really just focus on the things that were paying me if that was going to be where I want to go. So it was kind of a balance of, you know, how much money do I need to survive while um, picking up things that would actually go into advance my career, which may be paid or not paid, but they're actually useful um, sort of projects moving forward. And eventually it worked out. You now have a job, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're also still doing a lot of things at the same time, some of which I suppose are also unpaid. So now you're a principal legislative analyst for the University of California, and you also have various roles that focus on empowering early career scientists, which I think is absolutely wonderful. And I wish that there were more people like you out there. And you know what? Maybe there are, but they might not be visible enough. So hopefully this episode will encourage more young scholars to know that there are people like you out there and to find them in the right places. So let's start with this. What exactly is the unhealthy culture currently pervading academia that everyone is always talking about? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of things. So I think I would say one of the biggest problems is the power dynamic and sort of, you know, I think a lot of young people go into academia thinking that they're going to be able to do so many things and you are to an extent. But there's also a lot of limitations given that you're, like you said, sort of the lowest person on the poll and trying to work your way up and it's not easy. So there's a lot of factors that go into it, obviously, like being a female. Uh, and I did mention this, but my PI was also female. So that was actually good for you know having a role model and seeing somebody that has done really well in academia. I think the other side is sort of the culture of focusing a lot on, which makes sense in a way, publications and grants, because you need to keep labs going. But at the same time, If you always focus on productivity, then you lose sort of the other aspects of realizing that your um, your student is actually a person who needs a break, you know, work-life balance, mental health, all these things that we don't talk about, which is why I'm more interested in this area now. Going through my transition, I've also realized that I think the academic system doesn't really prepare you for careers outside of academia, because... Uh, Pretty much everyone I know has sort of made their way out of it in a unique way, but not in a structured way, just sort of similar to me, I think, just picking up things to explore and figure out where they were going to go. But it's, you know, I think if that's one thing I would sort of try to change is incorporate more um, kind of real world skills or other courses or other things into the training Um, so that it's not just like, okay, you took this classes, now you work in the lab. So there's a lot of things that you need to know, even if you are a faculty, that are not being taught, like how to manage people and budgets and even grant writing, right? So I was lucky. Actually, my PI um, was teaching a grant writing class also, so I got that 
skill. So yeah, I think there's a lot of things that, that those would be kind of the, the top sort of how does, you know, the system prepare people for when they leave? How does it focus on their well-being once they're there? And sort of how do you ensure that they have a voice and they're able to participate in the system um, in a way that is, you know, they have leadership positions or things like that, that they're not just sort of, um, you know, a low person on the pole and they're just working for the PI and that's it. Um, there's a lot of th more things that can be done um, if you're, you know, give them the opportunity to do it, I think. And that's what uh, sort of drives all of these, my other... Um, side projects, I guess. <laughs> I've heard from quite a few other guests that it's very difficult to get especially a position as a professor, right? Besides it taking a long time, there's also simply just not enough of those positions. So I think you're very right when you're saying that people like me who are still early in their career, in their PhD, should get some more tools to start exploring what happens if you're the one who doesn't get that position. And maybe also to talk a little bit more about that it's not necessarily a fail if you don't get that position. That it's maybe nothing personal and nothing about you, but that there's other things out there that you could still do. So it's very nice to hear an example like you here today. Did you receive the guidance and support that you needed during the PhD and the postdoc? To an extent, I think in a professional sense, I felt like I definitely got that from my PhD in terms of, you know, just learning how to think and manage a lot of different things, things sort of skills that you take from there, right? So like being able to give a, a good presentation, being able to write. So we do a lot of writing and policy, which I mean, it's a different type of writing, but being able to discipline yourself and do what you need to do on the, that day. Um, a lot of that came from what I learned in my PhD. I think once, and once I started ex sort of exploring careers in my postdoc, I felt like I had to kind of be proactive about that, which is good and bad. I sort of felt like I mean, I definitely, there are definitely times when I felt lost and like, okay, what do I do? Who do I go to? My advisor doesn't know because that's the other problem, right? That faculty don't know about all the different careers that you can go into. Then you have to find people who have either have those careers or they can guide you. And there's other sort of advisors or mentors you need to find. So, so I think what I personally, what I got is I got guidance and what it would take to be a good academic. But everything else I had to figure out <laughs> and go and, you know, find the people that would help me sort of get to any other career, which is, you know, I think in the end it's worked out in that um, going through this exploration process, I can now come back and talk to students who are in that, in that position. But I also I felt like the system didn't really support sort of this transition to other careers. And what do you think that universities or research institutions, but also maybe more on the ground supervisors can do or change to provide that support. So one of the things that was really helpful for me is the, um, my IDP, which is basically a assessment of your strength and sort of basically you go through this test and figure out what you're good at and what careers match those things. So having those kinds of opportunities to explore careers, which again, not all universities have, um, some sort of seminar. So this is something that I also did. Actually, I started a seminar um, while I was a postdoc to bring speakers to talk about different career options. Um, so these sort of resources are helpful just to expose um, trainees to different careers, just even through just a 
you know, one month, one seminar a month, um, which I think that's going to require to an extent a, a change in the system itself to actually allow people to break away from the lab and do these things which I think is where the, the main problem is, but just realizing that, you know, not everyone wants to be an academic and support them in what they want to do because there are opportunities and ways to do it, but it's going to require some time that they may take away from the lab to do that. Um, if they want to do, you know, science communication or science writing or policy, you know, there are things that they can get involved in. But at the same time, not all universities have those things, right? So it's hard sometimes for people to get access and actually get the resources for that, which is why you need sort of sometimes outside organizations that are providing those resources that institutions don't. And obviously we can expect faculty to provide all that, but um, you know, I think that's what I would say. Just be supportive that your trainees may want to do something else and help them as best you can. But you know, there are, there are things um, that they can do, but you're going to have to basically allow them to get away from the lab and get involved in other things so they can grow that, that direction uh, if that's what they want. So there's small things that the people on the ground, like the supervisors, can do to help the people they directly work with, but it should really be an institutional change to make the difference. How do you think that the corona crisis will affect young scholars and their support system? Yeah, that's something we talk about a lot. I don't know. I think it's it must be really difficult to be a grad student now and not be able to do your work. And I wonder, um, so on the one hand, I wonder how that's going to affect the, the labs themselves in terms of, you know, if they shift to sort of pandemic types of research that might be helpful for keeping keeping your research going, but at the same time, you know, they had a topic before this happened. So that's one thing I wonder about is how that's going to shift sort of the topic of the lab, whether the students will have to then study that topic and will that affect their careers or not. Uh, I definitely wonder also how many of them will want to stay in science because of this. I don't know that I would, it probably would would uh, bring me down and realizing that I'd not be able to do those things. Uh, I think, I mean, a lot of that depends on what kind of research you do also and how far along you are. So if you have data, you know, you can stay home and analyze data. Or if you do computational work, you know, you can do it from home if it's not a wet lab kind of thing. But yeah, I do think that it might turn people away from science careers. Uh, at the same time, it has, I think, led to a more deep thinking about what it means to be a scientist and this this environment because I think it's important to realize what you can do as a scientist right so you can volunteer for example to do testing or something like that you can um, you know talk to the public about what you do so I've seen a lot more of this sort of outreach happening now you know scientists talking about what they're doing and how it's going to affect society and this whole value of science and society that's coming out of this pandemic which is probably good um, so there are positives too I like talking about the positives. That's actually what I wanted to do next. <laughs> so let's move on to when you look back on your academic training and also your current career path, what would you say are your biggest achievements? And do you have any tips and recommendations for other young scholars about to finish their PhD or postdoc? My achievements, that's interesting. I think when I wasn't my PhD, I would have said that. Probably my achievements were 
being able to give a really good talk, you know, because that takes a long time. You prepare a long time once you actually you're done and you give your seminar and you know once a year it's a big deal you're done publishing obviously is but i think now being in in this position i sort of see that as a very small element of the whole sort of trajectory that i've taken because that's only i think made me realize how much i i interested in sort of improving the whole system right And so um realizing that those things are achievements but they're really sort of in the moment right so again thinking about the long term of the things that I'm more most proud of some so some of them are um some of the research that I did after my postdoc uh with future research um looking at sort of more systemic things right so we did a study around postdoc salaries um in the US across institutions um we've done um sessions to meet with students either um through local meetings or at national conferences to le- essentially learn about what their problems are and what they would like to see changed so i think for me um the achievements that i'm most proud of now are things that i think have actually made a difference or you know gotten deeper into sort of what the problems are and how we can solve them and what we can do for that. So if there's something that you realize for example people don't have resources for career development and transitions and all of this, can you create something that will help them help, you know, get that if they're not getting it from their institution, right? So the value of having this kind of outside resource, which is really again a lot of things that I'm doing now have stemmed from that fact that I didn't have resources that I needed and realized that someone had to create them or you know there had to be a body of something else that would make them if the institution wasn't going to change because that's very hard to change the the systemic um issues that are in, going on right so you may be able to do that um maybe at a sp- specific school but it's very hard to say okay now all the universities need to change this one thing and that's not going to happen overnight so one way to improve the system is to have this kind of outside organizations and groups that do it and sort of help trainees along the way. So even though those things um as I said some were paid, some were unpaid and so really that it doesn't it didn't really matter because I just I had a lot of passion for that and um you know I'm proud of it no matter whether I got paid to do it or not because I think it made a difference um for trainees hopefully. I think you should be proud. Yeah. We've almost come to the end. So my question is, what is your next project and what are you going to do with that? Yeah, I don't know um where I want to go from here. I think um especially now working for University of California, which is one of the largest uh recipients of federal funding. So you really see a lot of really promising trainees in the system. Um I'm working on something related to the effect of COVID on early career researchers um and thinking more about sort of oh, part of it is how does this pandemic affect them and I think at this point I'm at sort of a point where I know more about what I kind of see the research system looking like and what the workforce is dealing with especially now being in policy but seeing what students in the system deal with. So I'm trying to figure out sort of my next direction of how I'm going to um 
focus more on kind of workforce development from here. There are, I think there are a lot of different avenues and ways that you can take sort of this policy knowledge in that direction. Um, like, for example, if you work for government and um, designing um, some sort of program that will help um, maybe sort of the workforce at a higher level. So that's one of the things that I have always kind of gravitated towards going from change at one institution to how can you make that a broader change across the system. And so, I've, you know, sort of has evolved from one university to a larger system. So I work for the UC system now, but then how can you make that even broader, right? So, and of course, like funding agencies and government have a lot of power in terms of potentially changing the system by incorporating things into grants or programs that will ideally, hopefully trickle down to um, universities. And so I guess I'm looking for what is going to be the next best way for me to make that kind of impact that I want um, and where that will be. So that's to be determined. Um, it's kind of, again, I'm again in an explore, exploration phase, I think. <laughs> uh, so I feel like I have this role, but this is going to be a good, hopefully a good lunch pad for the next thing, um, which will hopefully allow me to make a broader impact than I am right now. I wish you the best of luck with that. I'll cheer to that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Do you have any coffee left for the last few questions? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Great. <laughs> so a few more short questions to wrap up. The first one is, what was the most important conference that you've been to? In your case, that could be something from during your studies related to your research, but maybe there's something more recently related to your work. I think the most important was one of the first ones um, that were not research related. So it's the National Postdoc Association. Um, so they have an annual meeting where essentially people who train students and postdocs go there. So there's a lot of university administrators and also postdocs. So it's a nice kind of mix and conversation between those groups. Um, that was the first meeting I ever went to that where I didn't talk about my bench research um, and realized that it was really fun to just think about sort of the system and the training, um, essentially spent three days talking about postdoc issues. And I was a postdoc and I knew, okay, these are the things that bother me and realizing that, you know, a lot of people have the same issues. That must have been a relief in a way. Yeah. And sort of, you know, realizing, um, I think what institutions were trying to do to help, but it was very refreshing to just spend three days and talk about these other things and not my research. And that's really where, you know, all this started for me and sort of the being interested in training and systemic issues and all of that, because I realized that that was an area that you could actually work in um, and not just my the research that I was doing. Okay, it was the beginning of, uh, of something new. Have you received any scholarships for any of your studies? Not in terms of financial, I guess. So I got some travel awards for some of these conferences. Most of it, though, was funded by my PI's grant, which is good and bad, right? Because I... <laughs> I ended up, as I said, having to leave my first postdoc because of money problems. So, yeah, I didn't really get any um, sort of fellowships of my own over time. All right. What do you consider to be your most important contrib contribution 
to your field? That's a tough question. I think, so I keep going back to this because I think this was sort of my, my first, but also my biggest um, impact is this study looking at postdoc salaries across U.S. institutions because number one, it's something that no one had done before, um, essentially increasing transparency around how postdocs get paid. I think it established a name for the organization that this is what we were doing. And we ended up going around the country talking about this data. We were invited to give talks and podcasts and blog posts and all sorts of things. Um, and it was also the first project that sort of linked policy to the academic world because it was the response of um, essentially this federal labor law that mandated that postdoc salaries would increase across institutions. And um, so it was an interesting intersection between the federal policy and the academic world, which is essentially what I do now and what I have gravitated towards because of that. Um, the other thing I liked is that it gave us the opportunity to look at sort of the landscape of um, postdoc salaries, which also appealed to me instead of looking at sort of one institution, what you can do again, what's happening nationally and what does it look like. And so I'm really interested in these sorts of trends around um, what different academic issues look like in a broader sense across the US and potentially even broader than that. Um, I think that part of that probably appeals to my academic background and that I still like data collection, publication, um, but it feels like it's more impactful now that it is actually related to things that could change the system and recommendations that we're making coming from um, young scientists who are either in science or have gone through that or um, are advocating for change. Um, in that sense. So that project had really had a lot of facets to it that I think have ex you know, expanded my direction from that point on to where I'm now. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Oh, who has? Or maybe there's someone you look up to or you used to look up to? Yeah, I think going back to, I think my PhD advisor, um, well, partly because I think she was one of the few people that I saw that was actually invested in the trainees uh, instead of just going through, you know, publications, grants. But I mean, on the one hand, she was really good at those things. Um, as I said, she her lab was always well funded while I was there. She was teaching the grants class. Um, and so I think that, you know, I appreciated seeing that um, also coming from a female PI. So that whole idea of, you know, she was one of two women in the department. So um, seeing like, okay, that's very empowering. Seeing that having a mentor who is doing really well and running her lab and, you know, publishing. And she was really, I think, pretty well known in the field. And at the same time, focusing enough on our training to make sure that we had that those skills when we left the PhD. Finally, how do you relax after a hard day of work? So these days, mostly taking my dogs for walks around, um, try to work out, uh, watch some TV. I also have a keyboard, so I used to play the piano growing up and decided to get a keyboard to have that. All right. Well, thank you again very much for sharing your positive message with us today. And also a thank you to the audience for listening to this somewhat more special episode with you. 
and keep coming back to find the next episode uh, which is coming out every week now